All right, good to to be with you guys this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to First Timothy, chapter three, and we'll just start here and kind of pivot for our lesson. All right, let me let me pray for us as we get going. God, thank you so much for your word to us, for speaking. We could never accomplish what you have accomplished with your word. We couldn't produce change in ourselves that your word produces. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't give ourselves new life, all things that you've done in your word. And we would lack any wisdom to navigate life in a fallen world uh, without being able to know your voice. You've spoken wisely and sufficiently to us. God, I pray that this morning, as we look again at familiar passages, that you would give us a clarity in our own pursuit of holiness, that you would make it clear what we must do, what we must believe, what we must pursue in order to look more like Jesus. And we pray that you would receive all the glory from all of these endeavors. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. First Timothy chapter three, as you know, is uh, the chapter that we often reference having to do with elder, <clears throat> having to do with feedback, <laughs> having to do with uh, elder qualifications. And uh, these are in First Timothy 3, 1 through 13. These articulate really what are God's high standard for church leadership. They're God's high standard for church leadership. Uh, and really just descriptions of Christian maturity. Um, mature Christians fit this description. Um, you could not have the title of elder or deacon, and yet your life can look this way. Um, and if you have the title of elder or deacon, certainly your life should look this way. Let me just read, starting at verse 1 through verse 13, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement if a man, any man, does, aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, 
but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who, serve, who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In terms of the the way these are laid out for this particular class build, this would be discipline for the qualifications and the encouragement from our elders has been for really the life of this church that men would be pursuing these character qualities. Not because every man in the church should be an elder, not because every man in the church should be a deacon, but simply because this is a picture of Christian maturity. And we want all the men to be seeing these things. Um, and we want the men to fit this description. Men who are uh, capable leaders, even if it's only at the level of, of their own homes. Uh, that if you're married, that means shepherding a wife and possibly children. Um, if you're not married, then that means uh, roommates or having a, a home that uh, has an aroma of this kind of maturity. And so these things, the, the things that we're putting in front of you men, these uh, five disciplines all go together in that sense. You'll notice that these things are even uh, visible in the qualifications. They're not isolated. Uh, a man doesn't fit this description with no attention given to his own heart, his own life personally, his own personal holiness. Um, so he can't practice or excel at discipline four, as we're calling it, the qualifications, and skip over discipline one, his own heart. Uh, verse two in, in chapter three that we just read, an overseer must be above reproach. That has to do with just a comprehensive blamelessness in every area of life. Uh, not just the home, not just in church on Sundays, but even privately, he must fit that description. Uh, discipline two is even a part of these qualifications. Uh, discipline two being the home. This is a, a man who's faithful and concerned for those in his home. He shepherds them toward God with the word of God. Verse four says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then Paul makes the argument in verse five from the lesser house to the greater house. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, that's the lesser family, then it stands to argue, it stands to reason, how in the world will that kind of man take care of the church of God? And there you see the parallel, not only between a man's own household, the lesser, and 
God's household, the greater household, the church. There's the, the parallel there. But also the parallel between management and taking care of. If a man can't manage, verse 5 says, his own household, then how will he take care of the church of God? Essentially, that's the idea that Paul is capturing in this management is a caring for, a taking care of. So you could say both things either way. If a man can't take care of his own household, how will he manage the church of God? If a man can't manage his own family, how will he take care of the family of God? That's the idea. So again, you can't skip discipline one or discipline two and fit these uh, qualifications that are listed as a part of discipline four. All of these things go together. And then discipline three obviously what's being described since it's being since it's describing an elder or a deacon is a man who is uh, a faithful leader in the church specifically in the family of God over the family of God um, God is a father he has a family and he has apportioned uh, or shared the care uh, he's delegated really the care of his family, the church, to under shepherds, to servants. Uh, pastors and deacons function as servants over the household of God. Uh, the pastors are not the fathers in the house. God is the father. As children themselves, deacons and pastors, as adopted sons, just like all the other members of God's household, they're on level footing in that sense, they get to participate in a unique way at a leadership level, but merely as as servants, not as uh, unique sons, not as the parents or the father of the house, but merely as a servant level, servant levels of leadership. And so obviously all of these disciplines go together. The man who is diligent, and faithful, uh, guarding his own heart with all vigilance, as Proverbs 4.23 says, uh, is equipped, well-equipped to step into his home and be a godly influence there. Doesn't mean you do it perfectly, but you can be faithful. Uh, a faithful leader, managing, uh, overseeing, taking care, uh, making sure that the spiritual and even temporal needs of the people in your home are taken care of, and a man who is faithfully doing that will be useful uh, at this and these layers of leadership in, in the church. Uh, that does beg the question, how do I get there? Now, maybe you're, you're looking at this list, uh, maybe you've read this dozens and dozens of times, um, I see old faces in Bill, not old people, just... <laughs> Not you, Tom. You ate you age very well. Um, but just thinking, you know, how do I? I've read this maybe many times. How do I? How do I get here practically? Um, how do I? What do I do day to day? You know, wake up tomorrow, 
do I just pray and, and hope that God is faithful, that God gets me here one day? You know, maybe I just keep waking up as many days in a row and eventually I'll just go, wow, I'm here. You know, I've arrived at deacon level. You know, uh, certainly that's not how it happens. It, it's even um, a poor way to think about these, to think of them as an arrival. You know, I've arrived, I am, I am elder qualified, or I've arrived, I'm deacon qualified. To think, you know, once, once I get there, then I can finally kick up my feet and relax. Uh, this is an end point. That is not how these work. Uh, the person who finds himself fitting this description one day has simply been on an ongoing trajectory in his practice of these things. You know, if you think of the spectrum of Christian maturity, anybody who's saved is somewhere on that spectrum of Christian maturity. You don't arrive at the end of Christian maturity and now, now I'm elder qualified or now I'm deacon qualified. Uh, rather, the, on the spectrum of Christian maturity, the man who consistently matures and practices Godliness will at some point fit this description. He'll fit this description, and depending what church you're in, uh, be useful in one of these one of these positions. There's not an age given on this. Young men should be pursuing these things uh, so that you fit this description, as well as older men. This is uh, really available for all God's people who would walk faithfully in this way. And so rather than an end point, this is a, a continual pursuit. And then the person who, by God's grace, does fit this description, what should he do? He should keep laboring, doing the same things that produce that kind of maturity. He must keep doing these things, keep practicing these disciplines that got him there so that he continues to progress and even mature in the qualifications, to grow in the qualifications. They are not an endpoint in that sense. But like I mentioned, that does beg the question, how do I get there? Just practically, what must I do to mature as a Christian man? Uh, and for, for that, we want to turn our attention to Romans chapter 12. That's where we'll plant this morning. Romans chapter 12, as we talk about biblical change. Biblical change. Regardless of where I am today, in my own estimation or in the estimation of others, how do I practically mature as a Christian so that my life tomorrow looks more like Jesus than my life does today? When it comes to this area of biblical change, Every Christian knows that we have to change. Every Christian, just by virtue of believing the gospel, knows that we are not good enough. We are lacking in goodness, in righteousness, in obedience, in holiness and godliness. So the moment you become a Christian, you really begin uh, an ever, a never-ending quest to increase in those things, in holiness, in conformity to Christ's likeness.
we know that that's true. And oftentimes we can be very unclear on what to do today to increase, intentionally increase in godliness. Uh, many times the idea is, well, I know I'm supposed to be more like Jesus. And I know there are some essential things that have to do with becoming more like Jesus, like Bible reading, like prayer, like being a part of the church. But more often than not, more often than not in my experience, there is a, a great lack of clarity in how to use those means to force growth or to intentionally produce maturity in my own life. And if we are unclear on that, then that's going to produce quite a bit of aimlessness in our pursuit of Christian maturity and our pursuit of biblical change. Um, you can have all the pieces uh, to a Lego set and depending how savvy you are, you know, if you're Jeff Kershaw, you'll have no problem. But for the rest of us, uh, I need an instruction manual. I need a, a blueprint, uh, something to tell me what's, what do I do with these various good pieces that I know all fit together. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of function that way. Uh, it gives us something of a blueprint for biblical change. Now, let me just qualify that statement by saying you are not going to read this passage, which probably all of you have read before, and think, oh, here's a one, two, three, you know, eight steps that I can just neatly put into place each day. And here's where they fit in my day. Here's the times that I employ these steps. And if I just do these for... X amount of days in a row, then voila, I will magically appear a mature Christian. You know, in goes the formula, out comes the result. That's not what this passage is. It's not a blueprint in that sense. Uh, if you think that there's a, a neat, tidy algorithm to produce that kind of holiness, you're just mistaken. You know, what passages do I read on Sunday, February 13th? What passages are going to produce maturity? You know, and then, of course, if you had that, you would never read Leviticus or Numbers. Um, it's just it, Christian maturity, biblical change doesn't work that way. We're given all of God's word for all of our profit. But this is a blueprint in the sense that it gives us some essential things that are a part of biblical change. Uh, without these, we won't change. And with these, change is promised to us. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2 is going to be crucial for this discussion. Paul says, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that 
you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's my summary for these verses this morning. You have it at the bottom of, uh, I think, page one for you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. On the basis of God's salvation, we are called to personal transformation by way of constant meditation for the sake of God's glorification. On the basis of God's salvation, we are called to personal transformation by way of constant meditation for the sake of God's glorification. That's one way to capture what Paul is after in Romans 12, 1 and 2. First, God's salvation. We'll work through each of these categories this morning and kind of lay out for us God's plan for biblical change. Number one, God's salvation is what's in view in verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. That is what Paul has been describing in Romans from the beginning of the book, from chapter one all the way through chapter 11 is the mercies of God, the multifaceted, abundant mercies of God that come to both Jews and Gentiles who believe the gospel. And he has just unpacked chapter after chapter these mercies of God. They come chapters one through three to undeserving sinners, people who don't have God's law and only have general revelation, chapter one. These mercies of God come to those who have the very law of God and an informed conscience, Romans chapter two. They come to the men and women who are not good, chapter three, who are not righteous, who cannot be justified by the law whatsoever. Those who have faith in Jesus, chapter 3, verses 23 and following, these mercies of God come to them. Uh, those who embraced Christ, who have embraced Christ by faith alone and have finally been reconciled to God, who are no longer slaves to sin, chapters 4, 5, and 6. That's the... That's the the group of men and women and children to whom these mercies of God come. Uh, by the time you get to chapter 11, Paul has labored in 9, 10, and 11 to describe what's been happening with the Jews in God's plan. And that section that describes the bringing in of the Gentiles during a unique time in God's uh, plan of redemption and redemptive history when the Jews have finally been cut off for the sake of bringing in Gentiles in, a, in abundance in a unique way during the church age for the sake of making the Jews jealous and producing a repentance eventually in the Jews. Paul finishes with this statement at the end of that section in verse 11 or excuse me chapter 11 verse 32 he summarizes all of that with this statement. For God has shut up all in disobedience 
so that he may show mercy to all. Meaning, all Jews and all Gentiles who believe, all Jews, all Gentiles who embrace the gospel by faith, who are shown this tremendous mercy of God, the Jews were chosen to the exclusion of Gentiles so that you get a trickling of Gentiles into the Jews who believe. And then the, so the Jews or the Gentiles rather are thinking, I have no access to God's promises and yet he's received me, mercifully so. Uh, Gentiles like uh, Rahab and um, Ruth would have been included. I don't belong here. I, this is not my God. I'm, I'm a, a foreigner coming in by grace alone to these promises that have been made to the Jews who believe. And then during the church age, the tables get reversed and God has made the Gentiles his people to the exclusion of the Jews so that the Jews, when God finally restores Israel, they will get in thinking, I don't belong here. I was cut off, just like the Gentiles were beforehand. And so all together, both Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles, who inherit the promises, all together can say, I don't belong here. I am only here on the basis of the mercy of God. God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. That's the idea. Jews and Gentiles, all who believe, have believed and become inheritance uh, or inherit inheritors, heirs. Thank you, heirs of the promises uh, on the basis of mercy. And then Paul spends many words in verses thirty-three and thirty through thirty-six, marveling at this mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. To orchestrate this plan, Paul is just awestruck and erupts in worship at this God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways, because no one else would have thought to do it this way. God's tremendous riches and wisdom and knowledge are on display in the way he has designed to bring in Jews and Gentiles to saving faith in the gospel. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that he might be paid back? Answer, no one, no one, no one, and no one. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. It is because that is true, because that kind of God has orchestrated the gospel and mercifully brought in Jews and Gentiles to saving faith. Verse one in our passage, therefore, because of that, I urge you, brethren, because of that truth, that you're a recipient of God's mercy, then on the basis of God's mercy that has saved you, on the basis of his salvation, then you must do this. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. 
Notice that in what we just read, there is a command that issues from the gospel. There is a command that follows on the heels of God's mercy. We were not created to merely be recipients of mercy. In other words, the goal, our existence, um, our purpose in life is not to merely receive mercy. And we can kick up our feet and say, wow, isn't this great? I've received mercy. But there's, there's something that ought to follow that reception of mercy. And here we're given a command now to obey. We're given a command to obey. Uh, notice that this is the natural implication. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 are the natural implication of the gospel. The gospel is producing uh, or should result in practical obedience and obedience to, to God's command. So that the gospel is not actually an end in and of itself, but rather the gospel intends something beyond just salvation for us. Uh, salvation is intending something further. Um, there's a, an idea popular in our day that the Christian life is just all about being impressed with God, either in word or at the heart level, just saying, wow, the gospel's great. Wow, God is great. Wow, we've received mercy. And if we've just been impressed enough, then we've fulfilled our duty as Christians. That's not true. God intends for us Chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, to marvel at his mercy, to be overwhelmed at his impressiveness in the gospel. Certainly that is true. We must do that. Uh, no one who is not impressed with God's character in the gospel can accurately obey chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So we must be impressed. We must marvel at God's grace to us in the gospel. And yet that's not all God intends. That's not where things should stop for us. But there is obedience to be had. There is obedience to practice beyond that. And so we must respond to these mercies of God with a worshipful, transformation of life. Notice that Paul says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is, uh, in some translations, reasonable. Has God been mercy to, merciful to you? Has he rescued you from the penalty and the power of sin through faith in the gospel? Has God been gracious to you? Then this is the the only reasonable next next thing as an act of worship right that's the 
the, the holy sacrifice, the sacrificial language that's given there, you should think of yourself as just offering yourself to God. Not to have a martyr complex, right? To, in some foolish act of, uh, you know, suicide is, is, isn't the idea, but a living sacrifice. Uh, as one who goes on living life, it must be in this manner that you are continually presenting yourself, offering yourself up to God in an acceptable way. And this is spiritual service. This is worship. The Christian life is about worship, not just in word, not just in saying that we love God or in marveling at the gospel with our words, but practically presenting our entire bodies uh, in service to God. This is what Paul calls worship. To have a high view of God, to be impressed with God in such a way that we walk differently, that we live in obedience, that captures the essence of worship. And so the Christian life can be accurately said to be about worship. Worship, that means holiness of life ever-increasing transformation of life, conformity to Christ-likeness from a heart that is overwhelmed by the greatness of God in the gospel. And so this is what we're called to. This is on the basis of God's mercy and salvation to us. Let me, let me skip ahead in your outline uh, to number four, because I want you to see before we get to the, the middle, which is where we'll spend most of our time uh, on points two and three, just look at number four. This process is on the basis of God's salvation, on the basis of God's mercy in salvation to us. So it begins with God and this also ends with God himself. This aims at God's glorification, number four. Uh, this process of worshipful transformation of life, according to verse two, is for the sake of God himself. Notice the so that conjunction there in your, in your text if you're reading the New American Standard Bible. This is so that or for the sake of it's um, identifying a, a purpose to prove what the will of God is, i.e. what's good and acceptable and perfect. So this is proving. Notice he doesn't say uh, this worshipful transformation of life makes God's will these things, good, acceptable, perfect. No, God's will, what he has commanded of us, is already good, acceptable, perfect, 
It's already those things. But the worshipful transformation of life that we're called to live is supposed to prove or demonstrate that it is these things. Think of all of the commands that God has given us as believers, everything even that he's written in our, uh, in our Bibles, in his words that he's communicated to us, that's profitable for godliness, right? Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, so that the man of God may be fully equipped or complete for every good work. When we step into those every good works that have been predestined for us to walk in, then we prove that God's word is what it says it is. We don't make God's word what it says it is, but we merely demonstrate that it is useful to produce godliness in us. And so that's the idea there, is the proving, is that by adherence to God's will, by submission to God's will, we have a tremendous opportunity to demonstrate that God is who he says he is. God claims to be great in wisdom, and when we walk in submission to his will, then we prove that his wisdom certainly is great. Now think about how this plays out in your home. We're in a day and age where we are confused about the categories of gender, right? Um, we're confused about, about men and women's roles. And so the, the more the culture trends that way, uh, the, the darker and more disorderly uh, men and women become at the level of the home, the more parents insist on uh, catering to their every whim of their children, right? Discipline isn't popular. Telling children no isn't popular. Um, not letting children have their way and essentially parenting themselves is increasingly unpopular. Letting children choose what they think is best for them. Um, it's going to be really easy to stand out as a Christian not doing those things in the culture. And so when your home is rightly structured, when mom and dad know that they are the parent, that God has given them to the children for wisdom, as proverb after proverb demonstrates, um, when you assume the role of a parent and you actually do what the qualifications, what we read in 1 Timothy says, men, you manage your household, you don't rule with an iron fist, but you care for the people under your God-given authority so that they are blessed by your leadership. They are blessed by your service in the home. Your wife uh, flourishes, not because you've handed over the reins of leadership to her, but because as the leader of your home, you have biblical clarity about what the home should look like, who should be doing what, and you labor uh, to make the environment of your home such that your wife can thrive in her God-given role um, as one who's called to submit to her husband, 
you conduct yourself in such a way, you have a pattern and a practice so that in your home, she loves submission. She uh, thrives, excels. Her gifts given to her by God operate best under your leadership because the environment of your home produces uh, an environment or just sets the stage for her to walk well in her God-given calling. When people from outside in the world step into that home and they see, man, this, this woman is, uh, sees herself as submitting to this man, following his leadership. The children, uh, although not perfectly in their role, uh, under the parents' authority, they at least recognize there is a just the moment I step into this home over the, the the threshold of this door, it is clear the children see themselves as having to obey mom and dad. Uh, and when that doesn't happen, there's a process, you know, mysteriously the the children are whisked away, and they come back compliant. You know, that's that's foreign to the world, right? So just by submitting to God's wisdom as men in the home, people from the outside get to watch Romans 12 to happen. God's good, acceptable, and perfect will is proven to be such by the way the home operates. Just think about when, when we're not doing those things, when we're failing to lead as we should, uh, children out of control with, uh, with no recourse, wife burdened uh, by sin and anxiety and fear because her husband's not helping her shepherd her heart, right? She feels like my husband's too lazy to lead the home, so I got to step up and do it because it just needs to be done. And so when, you know, when people see your wife, she's just burdened and exhausted, not because she's working hard, but because she's trying to play both roles, because dad's not doing his job, right? They, what do they see? They, don't, they see like, oh, that's a Christian home? That's what it means to be a, a Christian man? Ugh. And who wants, to, who wants to be that? God's will, if they're doing what God has called them to do in his word, then it must not be good and acceptable and perfect. That's the opportunity that we have as men. We can demonstrate by living worshipful, transformed lives that God's word is what it says it is. And it's in that sense that God is glorified. Um, he receives all the glory for his will, um, for his word being submitted to. That's the opportunity that, that we have before us. And so we see in what's described in Romans 12, 1 and 2, God is both the source as well as the goal of biblical change. It's on the basis of who God is, of his mercy extended to us in the gospel, that we can practice this worshipful transformation of life. And we ought to practice this worshipful transformation of life for the sake of God's glory alone. 
proving that he is who he says he is. And so we should, in this process, desire no glory for ourselves. This isn't for our own comfort, although life is most comfortable lived this way. You decrease your problems in life by living a worshipful life submitted to God, but that's not why we do it. Um, your home, although it requires lots of hard work, to have a rightly ordered and continuously rightly ordered home, that's hard work, you know, if we're practicing that. But it certainly is better than the other option, you know. Out, children out of control, unsubmissive, can't take them anywhere. That's not enjoyable either. You know, you can pick the, dis the, the difficulty of submitting to Christ or the difficulty of life not submitting to Christ. But either way, I mean, we don't do it for, for, that, for that purpose, for our own comfort. We don't do it because it makes marriage better. We do it because living this way glorifies God. And so with those things in mind, God as the source and goal, let's look at what's required uh, in what we're calling biblical change in verses 1 and 2. What's described here, uh, captured really in, in verse 2, is personal transformation by way of constant meditation. Personal transformation by way of constant meditation. Uh, number 2, just dealing with the personal transformation aspect. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Here there's a prohibition and an obligation. The prohibition is mentioned first. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't look like the unbelieving world. Don't be conformed to them. Don't be squeezed into the mold of unbelievers so that your life and their life become indistinguishable. That should not be the case. The way we relate to our wives, the way we embark upon hobbies or uh, have hobbies, engage in those hobbies, the ways that we look uh, in our careers, the ways that we run our homes, none of that stuff should look the same as unbelievers. It should be distinguishable in the way that we carry ourselves in each of those areas of life. Do not be conformed is the prohibition. The obligation, which is the opposite of being squeezed into the mold of the world, it is to be positively transformed, but be transformed. This is the way we, uh, the, the word from which we get our word in English, metamorphosis. Be transformed. Be transformed. Notice it doesn't say, but be conformed to Christ. Right? It doesn't just say, hey, just look externally like Christ. Yeah, don't look like the world in how you live and how you practice and what you practice. So that when people look at you, the Christian, and the world, they look the same. Don't be conformed to the world in that sense. But you have to also do something more than just be conformed 
externally to Christ-likeness. You know, you, you look to everybody around you like you're just living the Christian life. Well, that's not really enough either to externally just fit the description. You have to be transformed. It's something more than just mere conformity, right? You can conform at small group. You can conform on Sundays. You can conform when you're serving in various ministries and just play the part. But that's not what we're after. That is not biblical change. This is not mere, a mere change of behavior. You need to be positively transformed. That includes the inner life as well as what people see externally. That's biblical change. That's real change. That's the kind of change that can't be imitated by someone who's not being transformed from the inside out, right? This isn't just playing the part. This isn't theater. This is being transformed at the heart level. And that's, I mean, that's even clear by the next phrase, by the renewing of your mind. If he's talking about external conformity merely, then you don't have to renew your mind to do that. Right? Behavior modification does not require a change of heart, a renewal of mind, of the inner self. So what Paul's aiming at is the inner life, discipline one, the heart. You have to know, man, how to change yourself at the heart level, how to work with God to produce change in the inner life so that you are different. We have to have clarity on that. If we don't know how to change the heart, then we will fall short of what God is aiming at here. We will fall short of biblical change. There has to be a, a sincerity, a true fear of God that alters the very core of who we are so that we live differently. Um, so that we have different actions, emotions, thoughts. We have a different will. Um, our speech and desires are different. Notice, notice uh, the, the way this verb is worded, be transformed. Be transformed. That's the passive sense of the word. He doesn't say transform yourself. But it is a command for you to do it, not somebody else. That's interesting. It's a command that's passive, which means you must have something done to you. You're obligated, not somebody else. You, the, the man, are obligated to have this done to yourself. Be transformed. And obviously the... The passive actor, right, behind this command is God himself. It's like, be born again. Be born again. I can't make myself be born, but I'm on the hook for having God do this to me. Yes, that's right. Same thing here. That would be salvation. Be born again. This is sanctification. Be transformed. God is the one doing the transforming, ultimately. 
but we are completely obligated to work with God to have this transformation done. It's helpful at this point to just remember God is more zealous to exalt his name than anyone else is ever. God is more eager to receive fame and glory and exaltation and worship for this transformation than any one of us or all of us put together. God, that's, that's the reason God created us was so that he would be glorified through us. It's the reason he created us. It's the reason he saved, saved us. God intends to get his glory out of us. That's the purpose of the church, to exalt God's name and to uphold God's truth in the world, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. And so you don't ever have to wonder, is this going to even work? Is, is, what if I do all that I can to be transformed? Is God going to do his part? Well, if you know God wants to be glorified, then you don't even have to wonder whether God's going to transform you if you labor with him in that way, for that, for that purpose. Of course, does God want to be glorified? Is that not why God exists? Is that not why everything else exists? For God to be seen for who he is? Well, then you can obey this command as a promise. God will transform me. That's why if you are laboring to change biblically and failing, then it's never because God has, has failed, has failed you. You know, if, if you're failing to change, then you have to look no further than self. It is our fault when we don't change biblically. There is some lack of sincerity, some lack of obedience, some idol we're still hanging on to, some weakness in our own will, those are the reasons we're not changing, but it's never because God didn't, didn't do his part in changing us. Be transformed. Uh, it's an ongoing action accomplished by God that we are commanded to do. And this is, as I said, describing a complete change. This is thorough alteration of the person, this transformation. So this would be at the level of the thoughts. This would be including the level of your very will and, and uh, the choices that you make at the heart level um, where no one else can see your motivations. You, you would care to have godly, Christ-like motivations even. Nobody's ever gonna know. You could be in Grace Bible forever, potentially. And no one ever know the real reasons that you're confessing sin in small group. But if, if you care about biblical change, then you would strive to make them the very best motivation, God-honoring motivations. Transformation on that level is what Paul is after. How in the world do sinful people like us change at that level? What's the medium? What's the, the means by which we change like that? Have that thorough of an alteration 
altering our motives, altering our thoughts, altering our desires, altering our wills, altering our speech, our commitments, our convictions. What do we do? It's not complicated. He captures everything we're required to do essentially with one phrase, mind renewal. By the renewal of your mind, by the renewing of your mind. Mind renewal is the way that the Christian changes everything about himself that needs to be changed. That's a succinct way. That's Paul's succinct way in the, the providence of God, you know, writing God-inspired words. This is what God wanted us to know here. After all of this great theology about the gospel, here's what we're obligated to do in order to change so thoroughly, is renew our minds. Essentially, this is uh, this all has to do with thinking God's thoughts after God, agreeing with God about absolutely everything, period. Mind renewal. Clearly, if you you know, if we were to read all of Romans and been tracking with Paul's argument, um, with Paul's articulation of the gospel, there was a time where we were hostile in mind. The man who is in the flesh, his mind is set against the spirit. Romans chapter 8. There was nothing good in us. We were completely unable to please God at the level of our mind. We were actually uh, at enmity with God in our minds. We hated everything God was about at the level of our minds. Being rescued from that now... We have to continually be bringing our minds, what we're convinced of, what we believe, what we think, we have to bring our minds into alignment with God's mind, right? Isaiah tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. His mind is actually inaccessible to us. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but... What would happen if we didn't have a Bible? And go back to the um, medieval times up through the Reformation. We would be steeped in mysticism. We would have no access to God's thoughts. And if a pope or cardinals or priests told us what you have to do in order to be seen as righteous before God is pay me money, We'd be willing to do it. That sounds absurd to us. That's because we have a Bible. Because we have God's thoughts revealed to us. Without God's thoughts, we would not know any better. As they didn't for centuries. The way to accomplish this thorough transformation of life is by bringing our mind into alignment with God's mind. Do I think about work the way that God thinks about work? Do I think about parenting the way God thinks about parenting? Do I think about marriage the way God thinks about marriage? Do I think about my own heart the way God thinks about my own heart? Do I think about my uh, calendar the way that God thinks about it? Do I prioritize what God prioritizes? 
every area of life. Do I think about money the way that God thinks about it? Do I think about my friendships the way that God thinks about them? Everything. We have to renew our minds in absolutely every area of life, every decision of life, even our own motivations. When I'm motivated by something in the moment, am I practicing mind renewal so that I think about that decision, that motivation, the way God thinks about it? To do these things, we obviously have to have the truth. Without the truth, mind renewal cannot happen. Even with the truth, right, you can multiply Bibles in your possession and still not renew your mind. The goal isn't to have a Bible. The goal is to know your Bible and submit to it in order to have mind renewal. And let me just list a few things about our relationship to the truth that must be a part of mind renewal. If you're going to renew your mind, then your relationship to the truth has to include these things. If you do not, if you're missing any of these things in your relationship to the truth, then you will fail to renew your mind. Number one, you must seek the truth. You must seek the truth if you are going to renew your mind. Proverbs chapter two. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. You must seek the truth. If you do not seek the truth, if you maintain a posture as merely a passive recipient of truth, then you will never renew your mind. If you don't prioritize getting understanding in your life, then you will fail to effectively renew your mind. If you don't prepare for Sundays, equipping hour or main service or evening service, if you just show up and try and receive passively the truth, not being thoughtful about what you need to do, so that you can, in all you're getting, get understanding, right? You show up, you, you don't prepare your kids so you're more distracted than you, than you have to be. You don't train the children at home, right? Just thinking of a, a quipping hour of evening service, those times when our children are with us. You don't prepare them to sit still so that you can actually hear the sermon. Well, it's not their fault you're not hearing the sermon then. They can be trained to sit still. And if you are really serious about seeking the truth, then you will train them as best as you can so that you hear 30 minutes instead of 15 or whatever it is. Seeking the truth, uh, even crying out for understanding and praying about Sundays during the week. God, make us understand. Help me to, to gain understanding. Uh, during the week, prioritizing your own Bible reading. Yes, there are lots of things going on during the week. We can fill our calendars with good things. And if we don't have the mindset of Job, I uh, treasured your, your word more than my necessary portion of food. You know, if we don't take that posture 
then we're failing to seek the truth as we ought. Mind renewal requires that I must, independent of others, I must seek the truth. It also implies that I must know the truth. You think it's not enough just to look for it and never find it. You have to actually lay hold of the truth. You actually have to know what the Bible says in order to effectively renew your mind. I must know the truth. Psalm 119 implies this, uh, just articulates this time and time again so well. Verse 7 in Psalm 119 says, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. There has to be a understanding gained. You know, God's teaching when you open your Bible, you have to then be taught by him so that you increase in knowledge and learn something. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. Notice that the worship the psalmist intends, I will give thanks to you, as well as the holiness he intends at the heart level with uprightness of heart. This is all 119 verse 7. I shall give thanks to you, worship, with uprightness of heart. That's the biblical change, the transformation of life at the heart level. When will that occur? Well, when I learn your righteous judgments. You have to know what is true. You have to learn what is true. Really be taught by God in order to be a worshiper, a, a, wor a worshiper, in order to be a worshiper from an upright life. You have to know the truth. Verses 12 and 13 says, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, teach me your statutes. He's intending to grow in knowledge being taught by God. With my lips I have told of all the ordinance of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches, verse 14. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Verse 15. We have to know the truth in order to renew our minds. In order to think the way God thinks, we have to know what God knows, what God has told us to know. J.C. Ryle says this, a religion of feeling, right, as opposed to knowledge, a religion of feeling is an uncertain thing. It is like the tide, sometimes high and sometimes low. It is like the moon, sometimes bright and sometimes dim. A religion of deep Bible knowledge is a firm and lasting possession. It enables a man not merely to say, I feel hope in Christ, but rather, I know whom I have believed, like Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12. Don't just have a feeling about what is right, a feeling about the truth, but actually know what is truth. That is required for mind renewal. Thirdly, what re mind renewal involves is I must recall the truth, not just to seek it, not just to know it, but to actually be able to recall the truth in the moment. Um, in the moment of a conflict with your wife, 
when you know I need to be humble, I need to listen, and not react in an unkind way, something that she's pointing out to me is right, some concern that she's articulating is right, what's going to force you in the moment to humble yourself in the midst of that conflict? To uh, pursue peace instead of elevating your voice and doing whatever makes for further strife. You got to be able to recall the truth in the moment. You know, uh, a favorite passage of mine lately has been Proverbs 3 Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and who gets understanding. In this moment, do I, am I going to believe God? that the very best thing for me, what is going to bring the most blessing into my life is not winning this argument, having the last word, uh, arguing my wife into submission, but what's best is what is his wisdom, laying hold of wisdom in this moment. Um, am I going to believe Philippians 2? that it is actually better to put on the mindset of Christ who humbled himself to the point of a slave. In those moments, I must be able to recall the truth that I know, that the truth that I've sought. You can write down Psalm 119.11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. There has to be a treasuring up of God's words to avoid sin in the moment of temptation. You know, just because you haven't read your Bible yet today isn't an excuse to be sinful. But to be in a practice of treasuring up God's word over the long haul will then produce in those moments of temptation an ability to not sin against God. Um, if you find yourself sinning in the same situations, then it's probably because you have not treasured up God's word and prepared for that temptation. So I must be able to recall the truth, which implies that I've, I have it in me to recall. I've memorized God's word. I've saturated my heart in God's word. God's word richly dwells in me. And let me just blow through the rest of these and just give them to you. I realize we're over time now. Um, number four, I must believe the truth. I must believe the truth. In that moment, I have to actually believe God over my own inclination. Over whatever else I'm inclined to believe naturally, I have to, in that moment, choose to trust God and not my own heart. I must choose to believe God's word to me instead of whatever thought I'm having naturally in myself. That requires faith in the moment. You can renew your mind by believing the truth that you're recalling, that you know that you've sought. And then finally, number five, I must obey the truth. That's the, the last... <laughs> the last piece of the puzzle, so to speak, when the rubber meets the road, 
if you sought the truth, if you know the truth, if you've recalled the truth, if you're believing the truth, then the only thing left for you to do is actually yield your will in the moment and obey it. Submit to the to the truth, to what you know to be true. The man who's continually in the habit, in the practice of renewing his mind and makes the choice to relate to the truth in these ways, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, the man who's in that practice, he will be thoroughly transformed and one day find himself looking like 1 Timothy 3. Elders and deacons, what God requires of elders and deacons. And elders and deacons who by God's grace have fit that description must continue doing these things so that they continue to change and continue to meet these qualifications. This is um, required. This is a call for for all of us to meet to practice. I know we're we're over time. Any any pressing questions? Um, things that could be clarified. Uh, seek the truth. Know the truth. Um, things that are part of of mind renewal, the constant uh, meditation that we're describing. Seek the truth, know the truth, recall the truth, believe the truth, obey the truth. Yep. Think about sanctification this way. Pursue sanctification this way um, through this kind of mind renewal. All right. Let me pray. God, thank you so much again for your word. I pray for these men um, and the the rest of us at Grace Bible Church that we would uh, eagerly, by faith, pursue transformation of life so that you receive all the glory from uh, us as men, from our homes, as well as from uh, Grace Bible Church corporately, that you would get all the glory and that the entire world would marvel at your grace to sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.